0: Hello again, I'm Richard Figge, and this is for Reading Out Loud. Thanks for joining me tonight. This evening, we conclude the Ukrainian writer Nikolai Gogol's story, The Overcoat. In the first part, we met the protagonist, Akaki Akakievich Bashmachkin, a simple man who, under the title of titular counselor, was a copyist of documents in the Russian bureaucracy. He is content with his job, but is the butt of the unkind jokes and jibes of his colleagues, in large part because of his shabby apparel. After great effort and saving, he finally has a fine overcoat made by Petrovich the tailor, and when he next appears at the office, his co-workers are amazed and impressed. His superior even proclaims that this event must be properly celebrated and puts on a party for Akaki Akakievich that night. Our story picks up as Akaki leaves his modest rooms and heads out into the St. Petersburg night." The Overcoat by Nikolai Gogol. Part 2. I cannot say where was the house of the superior official who so graciously invited his subordinates to tea. My memory begins to grow weak, and the innumerable streets and houses of St. Petersburg go round so confusedly in my head that I have difficulty in finding my way about them. So much, however, is certain that the honorable official lived in a very fine quarter of the city, and therefore very far from Akaki Akakievich's dwelling. At first the titular councillor traversed several badly lit streets, which seemed quite empty, but the nearer he approached his superior's house, the more brilliant and lively the streets became. He met many people, among whom were elegantly dressed ladies, and men with beaver-skin collars. The peasants' sledges, with their wooden seats and brass studs, became rarer. While now every moment appeared skilled coachmen with velvet caps, driving lacquered sleighs covered with bearskins and fine carriages. At last, he reached the house whither he had been invited. His host lived in a first-rate style. A lamp hung before his door, and he occupied the whole of the second story. As Akaki entered the vestibule he saw a long row of galoshes. On a table a samovar was smoking and hissing, many cloaks, some of them adorned with velvet and fur collars, hung on the wall. In the adjoining room he heard a confused noise, which assumed a more decided character when a servant opened the door and came out bearing a tray full of empty cups, a milk jug, and a basket of biscuits. Evidently the guests had been there some time, and had already drunk their first cup of tea. After hanging his cloak on a peg, Akaki approached the room in which his colleagues, smoking long pipes, were sitting round the card-table and making a good deal of noise. He entered the room, but remained standing by the door, not knowing what to do. But his colleagues greeted him with loud applause— And all hastened into the vestibule to take another look at his cloak. This excitement quite robbed the good titular counselor of his composure, but in his simplicity of heart he rejoiced at the praises which were lavished on his precious cloak. Soon after, his colleagues left him to himself and resumed their whist parties. Akaki felt much embarrassed and did not know what to do with his feet and hands. Finally, he sat down by the players, looked now at their faces and now at the cards. Then he yawned and remembered that it was long past his usual bedtime. He made an attempt to go, but they held him back and told him that he could not do so without drinking a glass of champagne on what was for him such a memorable day. Soon supper was brought. It consisted of cold veal, cakes, and pastry of various kinds, accompanied by several bottles of champagne. Akaki was obliged to drink two glasses of it, and found everything round him take on a more cheerful aspect. But he could not forget that it was already midnight, and that he ought to have been in bed long ago. From fear of being kept back again, he slipped furtively into the vestibule, where he was pained to find his cloak lying on the ground. He carefully shook it, brushed it, put it on, and went out. The street lamps were still alight. Some of the small ale frequented by servants and the lower classes were still open, and some had just been shut. But by the beams of light which shone through the chinks of the doors it was easy to see that there were still people inside, probably male and female domestics, who were quite indifferent to their employers' interests. Akaki Akakievich turned homewards in a cheerful mood— Suddenly he found himself in a long street where it was very quiet by day and still more so at night. The surroundings were very dismal. Only here and there hung a lamp which threatened to go out for want of oil. There were long rows of wooden houses with wooden fences, but no sign of a living soul. Only the snow in the street glimmered faintly in the dim light of the half-extinguished lanterns, and the little houses looked melancholy in the darkness. Akaki went on till the street opened into an enormous square, on the other side of which the houses were scarcely visible, and which looked like a terrible desert. At a great distance, God knows where, glimmered the light in a sentry-box, which seemed to stand at the end of the world. At the same moment Akaki's cheerful mood vanished. He went in the direction of the light with a vague sense of depression, as though some mischief threatened him. On the way, he kept looking round him with alarm. The huge, melancholy expanse looked to him like a sea. No, he thought to himself, I had better not look at it. And he continued his way with his eyes fixed on the ground. When he raised them again, he suddenly saw just in front of him several men with long mustaches whose faces he could not distinguish. Everything grew dark before his eyes— and his heart seemed to be constricted. "'That is my cloak!' shouted one of the men, and seized him by the collar. Akaki tried to call for help. Another man pressed a great bony fist on his mouth and said to him, "'Just try to scream again!' At the same moment the unhappy titular counsellor felt the cloak snatched away from him, and simultaneously received a kick which stretched him senseless in the snow." A few minutes later he came to himself and stood up. But there was no longer anyone in sight. Robbed of his cloak, and feeling frozen to the marrow, he began to shout with all his might, but his voice did not reach the end of the huge square. Continuing to shout, he ran with the rage of despair to the sentinel in the sentry-box, who, leaning on his halberd, asked him why the deuce he was making such a hellish noise and running so violently. When Akaki reached the sentinel, he accused him of being drunk, because he did not see that passers-by were robbed a short distance from his sentry-box. "'I saw you quite well,' answered the sentinel, "'in the middle of the square with two men. I thought you were friends. It is no good getting so excited. Go tomorrow to the police inspector. He will take up the matter, have the thieves searched for, and make an examination.' Akaki saw that there was nothing to be done but to go home. He reached his dwelling in a state of dreadful disorder, his hair hanging wildly over his forehead, and his clothes covered with snow. When his old landlady heard him knocking violently at the door, she sprang up and hastened thither, only half-dressed, but at the sight of Akaki started back in alarm. When he told her what had happened, she clasped her hands together and said, You should not go to the police inspector, but to the municipal superintendent of the district. The inspector will put you off with fine words and do nothing. But I have known the superintendent for a long time. My former cook, Anna, is now in his service, and I often see him pass by under our windows. He goes to church on all the festival days, and one sees at once by his looks that he is an honest man." After hearing this eloquent recommendation, Akaki retired sadly to his room. Those who can picture to themselves such a situation will understand what sort of a night he passed. As early as possible the next morning he went to the superintendent's house. The servants told him that he was still asleep. At ten o'clock he returned, only to receive the same reply. At twelve o'clock the superintendent had gone out. About dinner-time the titular counselor called again but the clerks asked him in a severe tone what was his business with their superior. Then, for the first time in his life, Akaki displayed an energetic character. He declared that it was absolutely necessary for him to speak with the superintendent on an official matter, and that anyone who ventured to put difficulties in his way would have to pay dearly for it. This left them without reply. One of the clerks departed in order to deliver his message. When Akaki was admitted to the superintendent's presence, the latter's way of receiving his story was somewhat singular. Instead of confining himself to the principal matter, the theft, he asked the titular counsellor how he came to be out so late and whether he had not been in suspicious company. Taken aback by such a question, Akaki did not know what to answer, and went away without knowing whether any steps would be taken in the matter or not." The whole day he had not been in his office, a perfectly new event in his life. The next day he appeared there again, with a pale face and restless aspect in his old cloak, which looked more wretched than ever. When his colleagues heard of his misfortune, some were cruel enough to laugh, most of them, however, felt a sincere sympathy with him, and started a subscription for his benefit. BUT THIS PRAISEWORTHY UNDERTAKING HAD ONLY A VERY INSIGNIFICANT RESULT, BECAUSE THESE SAME OFFICIALS HAD BEEN LATELY CALLED UPON TO CONTRIBUTE TO TWO OTHER SUBSCRIPTIONS, IN THE FIRST CASE TO PURCHASE A PORTRAIT OF THEIR DIRECTOR, AND IN THE SECOND TO BUY A WORK WHICH A FRIEND OF HIS HAD PUBLISHED. ONE OF THEM, WHO FELT SINCERELY SORRY FOR AKAKI, GAVE HIM SOME GOOD ADVICE FOR WANT OF SOMETHING BETTER. He told him it was a waste of time to go again to the superintendent, because even in case that this official succeeded in recovering the cloak, the police would keep it till the titular consular had indisputably proved that he was the real owner of it. Akaki's friend suggested to him to go to a certain important personage who, because of his connection with the authorities, could expedite the matter. In his bewilderment, Akaki resolved to follow this advice— it was not known what position this personage occupied, nor how high it really was. The only facts known were that he had only recently been placed in it, and that there must be still higher personages than himself, as he was leaving no stone unturned in order to get promotion. When he entered his private room he made his subordinates wait for him on the stairs below, and no one had direct access to him. If anyone called with a request to see him, the secretary of the board informed the government secretary, who in his turn passed it on to a higher official, and the latter informed the important personage himself. This is the way business is carried on in our holy Russia. In the endeavor to resemble the higher officials, everyone imitates the manners of his superior. Not long ago, a titular counselor, who was appointed to the headship of a little office, immediately placed over the door of one of his two tiny rooms the inscription, Council Chamber. Outside it were placed servants with red collars and lacework on their coats, in order to announce petitioners, and to conduct them into the chamber, which was hardly large enough to contain a chair. But let us return to the important personage in question. His way of carrying things on was dignified and imposing, but a trifle complicated his system might be summed up in a single word—severity. This word he would repeat in a sonorous tone three times in succession, and the last time turn a piercing look on the person with whom he happened to be speaking. He might have spared himself the trouble of displaying so much disciplinary energy. The ten officials who were under his command feared him quite sufficiently without it. As soon as they were aware of his approach, they would lay down their pens and hastened to station themselves in a respectful attitude as he passed by. In converse with his subordinates he preserved a stiff, unbending attitude, and generally confined himself to such expressions as, "'What do you want? Do you know with whom you are speaking? Do you consider who is in front of you?' For the rest he was a good-natured man, friendly and amiable with his acquaintances, but the title of district superintendent had turned his head. Since the time when it had been bestowed upon him, he lived for a great part of the day in a kind of dizzy self-intoxication. Among his equals, however, he recovered his equilibrium, and then showed his real amiability in more than one direction. But as soon as he found himself in the society of any one of less rank than himself, he entrenched himself in a severe taciturnity, this situation was all the more painful for him, as he was quite aware that he might have passed his time more agreeably. All who watched him at such moments perceived clearly that he longed to take part in an interesting conversation, but that the fear of displaying some unguarded courtesy, of appearing too confidential, and thereby doing a deadly injury to his dignity, held him back. In order to avoid such a risk, he maintained an unnatural reserve, and only spoke from time to time in monosyllables. He had driven this habit to such a pitch that people called him the tedious, and the title was well deserved. Such was the person to whose aid Akaki wished to appeal. The moment at which he came seemed expressly calculated to flatter the superintendent's vanity and accordingly to help forward the titular counsellor's cause. The high personage was seated in his office, talking cheerfully with an old friend whom he had not seen for several years, when he was told that a gentleman named Akakievich begged for the honour of an interview. "'Who is the man?' asked the superintendent in a contemptuous tone. "'An official,' answered the servant. "'He must wait. I have no time to receive him now.' The high personage lied. There was nothing in the way of granting the desired audience. His friend and himself had already quite exhausted various topics of conversation. Many long, embarrassing pauses had occurred, during which they had lightly tapped each other on the shoulder, saying, "'So it was, you see.' "'Yes, Stepan.' But the superintendent refused to receive the petitioner, in order to show his friend—' who had quitted the public service and lived in the country, his own importance, and how officials must wait in the vestibule till he chose to receive them. At last, after they had discussed various other subjects with other intervals of silence, during which the two friends leaned back in their chairs and blew cigarette smoke in the air, the superintendent seemed suddenly to remember that someone had sought an interview with him. He called the secretary, who stood with a roll of papers in his hand at the door, and told him to admit the petitioner. When he saw Akaki approaching, with his humble expression, wearing his shabby old uniform, he turned round suddenly towards him and said, "'What do you want?' in a severe voice, accompanied by a vibrating intonation, which at the time of receiving his promotion he had practised before the looking-glass for eight days." The modest Akaki was quite taken aback by his harsh manner. However, he made an effort to recover his composure and to relate how his cloak had been stolen, but did not do so without encumbering his narrative with a mass of superfluous detail. He added that he had applied to his excellence in the hope that, through his making a representation to the police inspector or some other high personage, the cloak might be traced." The superintendent found Akaki's method of procedure somewhat unofficial. "'Ah, sir,' he said, "'don't you know what steps you ought to take in such a case? Don't you know the proper procedure? You should have handed in your petition to the chancellery. This, in due course, would have passed through the hands of the chief clerk and director of the bureau. It would then have been brought before my secretary, who would have made a communication to you. "'Allow me,' replied Akaki, making a strenuous effort to preserve the remnants of his presence of mind, for he felt that the perspiration stood on his forehead. "'Allow me to remark to your excellence that I ventured to trouble you personally in this matter, because secretaries—secretaries are a hopeless kind of people.' "'What? How? Is it possible?' exclaimed the superintendent. "'How could you say such a thing?' Where have you got your ideas from? It is disgraceful to see young people so rebellious toward their superiors.' In his official zeal, the superintendent overlooked the fact that the titular counsellor was well on in his fifties, and that the word young could only apply to him conditionally, i.e. in comparison with a man of seventy. "'Do you also know,' he continued, "'with whom you are speaking? Do you consider before whom you are standing?' "'Do you consider, I ask you, do you consider?' As he spoke, he stamped his foot, and his voice grew deeper. Akaki was quite upset, nay, thoroughly frightened. He trembled and shook, and could hardly remain standing upright. Unless one of the office servants had hurried to help him, he would have fallen to the ground. As it was, he was dragged out almost unconscious.' but the superintendent was quite delighted at the effect he had produced. It exceeded all his expectations, and filled with satisfaction at the fact that his words made such an impression on a middle-aged man that he lost consciousness, he cast a side-glance at his friend to see what effect the scene had produced on him. His self-satisfaction was further increased when he observed that his friend also was moved and looked at him half-timidly." Akaki had no idea how he got down the stairs and crossed the street, for he felt more dead than alive. In his whole life he had never been so scolded by a superior official, let alone one whom he had never seen before. He wandered in the storm which raged, without taking the least care of himself, nor sheltering himself on the sidewalk against its fury the wind, which blew from all sides and out of all the narrow streets, caused him to contract inflammation of the throat. When he reached home, he was unable to speak a word and went straight to bed. Such was the result of the superintendent's lecture. The next day, Akaki had a violent fever. Thanks to the St. Petersburg climate, his illness developed with terrible rapidity. When the doctor came, he saw that the case was already hopeless. He felt his pulse and ordered him some poultices, merely in order that he should not die without some medical help, and declared at once that he had only two days to live. After giving his opinion, he said to Akaki's landlady, there is no time to be lost, order a pine coffin, for an oak one would be too expensive for this poor man. When the titular counsellor heard these words, whether they excited him and made him lament his tragic lot, no one ever knew, for he was delirious all the time. Strange pictures passed incessantly through his weakened brain. At one time he saw Petrovich the tailor and asked him to make a cloak with nooses attached for the thieves who persecuted him in bed, and begged his old landlady to chase away the robbers who were hidden under his coverlet. At another time he seemed to be listening to the superintendent's severe reprimand and asking his forgiveness. Then he uttered such strange and confused remarks that the old lady crossed herself in alarm. She had never heard anything of the kind in her life, and these ravings astonished her all the more because the expression, Your Excellency, constantly occurred in them. Later on he murmured wild, disconnected words from which it could only be gathered that his thoughts were continually revolving round a cloak. At last Akaki breathed his last. Neither his room nor his cupboard were officially sealed up, for the simple reason that he had no air and left nothing behind him but a bundle of goose-quills, a notebook of white paper, three pairs of socks, some trouser-buttons, and his old coat." Into whose possession did these relics pass? Heaven only knows. The writer of this narrative has never inquired. Akaki was wrapped in his shroud and laid to rest in the churchyard. The great city of St. Petersburg continued its life as though he had never existed. Thus disappeared a human creature who had never possessed a patron or friend, who had never elicited real hearty sympathy from anyone, nor even arouse the curiosity of the naturalists, though they are most eager to subject a rare insect to microscopic examination. Without a complaint he had borne the scorn and contempt of his colleagues. He had proceeded on his quiet way to the grave without anything extraordinary happening to him. Only towards the end of his life he had been joyfully excited by the possession of a new cloak and had then been overthrown by misfortune. Some days after his conversation with the superintendent, his superior in the chancellery, where no one knew what had become of him, sent an official to his house to demand his presence. The official returned with the news that no one would see the titular councillor any more. "'Why?' asked all the clerks. "'Because he was buried four days ago.' In such a manner did Akaki's colleagues hear of his death. The next day, his place was occupied by an official of robuster fiber, a man who did not trouble to make so many fair transcripts of state documents. It seems as though Akaki's story ended here, and that there was nothing more to be said of him. But the modest titular counselor was destined to attract more notice after his death than during his life. And our tale now assumes a somewhat ghostly complexion. One day there spread in St. Petersburg the report that near the Katinka Bridge there appeared every night a spectre in a uniform like that of the Chancery officials, that he was searching for a stolen cloak, and stripped all passers by of their cloaks without any regard for rank or title. It mattered not whether they were lined with wadding, mink, cat, otter, bear, or beaver-skin, he took all he could get hold of. One of the titular councillor's former colleagues had seen the ghost and quite clearly recognized Akaki. He ran as hard as he could and managed to escape, but had seen him shaking his fist in the distance. Everywhere it was reported that councillors, and not only titular councillors but also state councillors, had caught serious colds in their honorable backs on account of these raids. The police adopted all possible measures in order to get this ghost dead or alive into their power and to inflict an exemplary punishment on him, but all their attempts were vain. One evening, however, a sentinel succeeded in getting hold of the malefactor just as he was trying to rob a musician of his cloak the sentinel summoned with all the force of his lungs two of his comrades, to whom he entrusted the prisoner while he sought for his snuff-box in order to bring some life again into his half-frozen nose. Probably his snuff was so strong that even a ghost could not stand it. Scarcely had the sentinel thrust a grain or two up his nostrils than the prisoner began to sneeze so violently that a kind of mist rose before the eyes of the sentinels. While the three were rubbing their eyes, the prisoner disappeared. Since that day all the sentries were so afraid of the ghost that they did not even venture to arrest the living but shouted to them from afar, Go on! Go on! Meanwhile the ghost extended his depredations to the other side of the Katinka Bridge and spread dismay and alarm in the whole of the quarter. But now we must return to the superintendent who is the real origin of our fantastic yet so voracious story. First of all, we must do him the justice to state that, after Akaki's departure, he felt a certain sympathy for him. He was by no means without a sense of justice. No, he possessed various good qualities, but his infatuation about his title hindered him from showing his good side. When his friend left him, His thoughts began to occupy themselves with the unfortunate titular counsellor, and from that moment onwards he saw him constantly in his mind's eye, crushed by the severe reproof which had been administered to him. This image so haunted him that at last one day he ordered one of his officials to find out what had become of Akaki and whether anything could be done for him. When the messenger returned with the news that the poor man had died soon after that interview, The superintendent felt a pang in his conscience, and remained the whole day absorbed in melancholy brooding. In order to banish his unpleasant sensations, he went in the evening to a friend's house, where he hoped to find pleasant society, and, what was the chief thing, some other officials of his own rank, so that he would not feel obliged to be bored. And in fact, he did succeed in throwing off his melancholy thoughts there. He unbent and became lively, took an active part in the conversation, and passed a very pleasant evening. At supper he drank two glasses of champagne, which, as everyone knows, is an effective means of heightening one's cheerfulness. As he sat in his sledge, wrapped in his mantle, on his way home, his mind was full of pleasant reveries. He thought of the society in which he had passed such a cheerful evening, and of all the excellent jokes with which he had made them laugh. He repeated some of them to himself half aloud, and laughed at them again. From time to time, however, he was disturbed in this cheerful mood by violent gusts of wind, which from some corner or other blew a quantity of snowflakes into his face, lifted the folds of his cloak, and made it belly like a sail, so that he had to exert all his strength to hold it firmly on his shoulders. Suddenly he felt a powerful hand seize him by the collar. He turned round, perceived a short man in an old shabby uniform, and recognized with terror a cocky's face which wore a deathly pallor and emaciation. The titular counsellor opened his mouth, from which issued a kind of corpse-like odor, and with inexpressible fear the superintendent heard him say, "'At last I have you,' by the collar. I need your cloak. You did not trouble about me when I was in distress. You thought it necessary to reprimand me. Now, give me your cloak. The high dignitary nearly choked. In his office, and especially in the presence of his subordinates, he was a man of imposing manners. He only needed to fix his eye on one of them, and they all seemed impressed by his pompous bearing." but, as is the case with many such officials, all this was only outward show. At this moment he felt so upset that he seriously feared for his health. Taking off his cloak with a feverish, trembling hand, he handed it to Akaki and called to his coachman, Drive home, quickly! When the coachman heard this voice, which did not sound as it usually did, and had often been accompanied by blows of a whip, he bent his head cautiously and drove on apace. Soon afterwards the superintendent found himself at home. Cloakless, he retired to his room with a pale face and wild looks, and had such a bad night that on the following morning his daughter exclaimed, "'Father, are you ill?' But he said nothing of what he had seen, though a very deep impression had been made on him. From that day onwards he no longer addressed to his subordinates in a violent tone the words, Do you know with whom you are speaking? Do you know who is standing before you? Or, if it ever did happen that he spoke to them in a domineering tone, it was not till he had first listened to what they had to say. Strangely enough, from that time the specter never appeared again. Probably it was the superintendent's cloak which he had been seeking so earnestly. Now he had it, and did not want anything more. Various persons, however, asserted that this formidable ghost was still to be seen in other parts of the city. A sentinel went so far as to say that he had seen him with his own eyes glide like a furtive shadow behind a house, but this sentinel was of such a nervous disposition that he had been chaffed about his timidity more than once, Since he did not venture to seize the flitting shadow, he stole after it in the darkness, but the shadow turned round and shouted at him, "'What do you want?' shaking an enormous fist such as no man had ever possessed. "'I want nothing,' answered the sentry, quickly retiring. This shadow, however, was taller than the ghost of the titular counsellor and had an enormous moustache. He went, with great strides, toward the Obachev Bridge, and disappeared in the darkness. You've been listening to The Overcoat by Nikolai Gogol. What began as a fairly realistic story became by turns a ghost story and revenge tale. It is the hallmark of Gogol's world that the grotesque and what we would call the surrealistic break into his narratives. This story has fascinated readers from its first publication date in 1842. A great critical literature has grown up around it, with viewpoints ranging from Marxist to psychoanalytic. It has been adapted as a film more than a dozen times, has been presented as a stage play, and even as a ballet. Let me share with you Vladimir Nabokov's assessment of Gogol's most famous story in his lectures on Russian literature. Steady Pushkin, matter-of-fact Tolstoy, restrained Chekhov, have all had their moments of irrational insight which simultaneously blurred the sentence and disclosed a secret meaning worth the sudden focal shift. But with Gogol this shifting is the very basis of his art, so that whenever he tried to write in the round hand of literary tradition and to treat rational ideas in a logical way, he lost all trace of talent. When, as in the immortal The Overcoat, he really let himself go and pottered on the brink of his private abyss, he became the greatest artist that Russia has yet produced. Let me know what you think. Drop me a line if you will at rfiggy, that's rf as in frank, I g g e, at worcester.edu. That's it for tonight. It seems appropriate to go out with a Ukrainian folk song such is her share. I hope you'll join me again next week. In the meantime, be well, be happy, please stay safe. All the best.